0: Welcome to the Inspired Wild podcast. I'm Garrett, the, one of the producers for Outback Outdoors and uh, really excited to talk to Adam Wells, who's here in Denver. And uh, Adam just got back from his property in Nebraska and was showing me a couple of the trail camera photos you got going out there. You got some exciting things happening out there this year for sure.
1: Yeah, every year we get a couple bucks in that you know, that 160 to 180 range. And this year's no different, but you know, it's kind of fun as, you know, as you get to learn the property, learn the deer monitoring the trail cameras, you get to see these bucks grow up. I got one buck coming in this year. That's going to be seven Dang. with little stickers. I, I looked back through the pictures. Seven years. I have pictures of him going back to, uh, what is it, 2011 or 2012? What he's a little he's like this little little skinny eight point with little flyers mm-hmm. off his G G twos. Yeah. yeah, and
0: you're not guessing that he's seven years old. You've got documented evidence yeah. of him. Like you can track him by his characteristics for Yeah, whole assuming
1: time. it's the same deer over the you know, those I mean the antler characteristics yeah. on this deer are very distinct. What this was, is the buck we are really targeting last year, we saw a few times, but Gotcha. You. In your opinion,
0: antler characteristics on the same deer as it matures? How does, in your opinion, how does that change? Or does it depend on the specific buck?
1: I think every buck is a little unique, right? But certain features like how the main frame or I should say the main beam shaped, the eye eye guards, um, you know, just the basic shape of the rack seems to be pretty consistent, you know, where you can, but you'll also find there's, you know, similar genetics out there. You'll get like the, the, the what we call the trashy genetic line. There was a buck that one of our original members there called Trashy, which was like a, I think he ended up going like 170, 175. And he had this very distinct rack. And about every two to three years, another buck will show up that has that distinct rack. So now we're on T3, which was a three-year-old last year that we were, I didn't even want to hunt where he was living because I didn't want to tempt myself. Um, nice. <laughs> and I know he made it through the season. I got pictures of him in the January and then he has a real And the same. What's interesting too, that genetic, What we call the trashy genetic, their bodies are really long. They're like long bodied deer. All three of them have had the same body shape. And so even after he shed his antlers in February, where i 'm monitoring my food plots i've still seen him show up. You could see his real wide eyes and a real long body, even mm-hmm. though he was shed i I could tell that he was he was that buck got you and so you're I mean you're monitoring these deer year after year maybe let's, let's I' probably spend a little too much time monitoring <laughs> my deer according to my wife, but I, got you. I do enjoy yeah. it it 's
0: like uh maybe let 's take a step back a little bit and just kind of uh, go through how you're able to do all this um in some sense the property that you have is kind of unique in that it it's a little bit larger property than I think most guys are used to managing, but you've had it for how many, 10 years now?
1: No, we're going on to our 13th year now. 13th year. Okay.
0: Yeah. So maybe just, maybe let's take a step back. You can explain the property kind of how you came into the property and then how you developed it into where it is now and how you're able to follow these deer year after year and really get to know uh, their characteristics, their genetics, and kind of their habits.
1: Well, just going back to the origins of the property, we didn't even buy it for the deer hunting. We actually bought it for the waterfowl and upland bird hunting. It sits in, we're right in the middle of one of the top pheasant counties in Nebraska. We have an incredible waterfowl resource. I mean, literally we are holding tens of thousands of ducks and geese through the through the fall and winter migrations. Um, and then the deer is something that we're like oh yeah there's deer way in nebraska structures their seasons with the rifle season right in the heart of the rut the two bucks state we're like eh, you know nebraska's got deer we'll hunt some deer but let's really focus on developing the bird hunting mm-hmm. and then we you know we still put a lot into the bird hunting but as i started to pursue whitetails, starting there about 13 years ago on that property i really became enchanted with the whole process of hunting whitetail you know even though our property our property is about 750 acres which is a good size property Mm -hmm. but of that there's only about 300 acres of good deer habitat so that's kind of getting into like more your average size you know deer parcel um but it's all you know great habitat you know that like prime habitat, the yeah. three hundred or and so acres. And this is acres.
0: your quote-unquote traditional river bottom habitat. That's kind yeah. of the country that yeah, you're-, like you're yeah, like out
1: here in the you know in the West and the plains, you get those rip- riparian corridors where you leave the rivers uh, in the main river valley. Even all the side cha- channels maybe have just a one or two little cottonwoods there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like that prime ri- riparian corridor. And yeah, we're probably ninety percent whitetail. I find in the summertime we get a lot more mule deer, then as the white tails come back in to that thicker cover in the fall they the mule deer disperse. And once you get away
0: from the riparian corridor, then you've got your more traditional prairies prairie and agriculture. Yeah. So dry we land, have agriculture yeah,
1: it's kind of interesting where we're at. Um, south of the river is a little patch of sand hills. And then you go north of the river and it's more of a loamy soil where you get the canyon kind of country, which is kind of the stuff we're hunting the mule deer in. Uh, you know, we're, only, we're hunting mule deer in Nebraska's just an hour and a half or so away from my mm-hmm. place. So.
0: Yeah, not too far. So let's look at the development of... Your ranch that you're on right now. So let's revert back to whatever ten years ago when you really started to focus on the management of the habitat mm-hmm. to improve the whitetails, and maybe look at it through the lens of another guy or a group of guys that just got into their property. Like, what were you looking at back then, and how would that translate to someone else that just bought a property, and what should they be looking at?
1: Yeah. So, you know, go looking back ten years ago. It's just amazing how much I've learned. I, I was su- such a beginner. I mean, it, you know, that's part of the fun of it too, is figuring it out. Every, I think every property is gonna be unique for what it needs, but like a basic thought process that I would apply on any new property is what is the limiting factor for that, for that population survival? And how can you control or enhance that limiting factor? Uh, so I started with my property because I was working, you know, managing you know, these big ranches, which is a twenty-four-seven job. I didn't have the time to really come out and do a good job on food plots, put up a few stands, just enough. But I wasn't able to really have the time out there to understand exactly how the deer were moving, really get those stands like perci- precisionly set how I, how I like. Em. Sure. Um, but going back to just what it needs for the habitat once you can kind of pinpoint those limiting factors then it's about researching how do you enhance that limiting factor Mm -hmm. Um, so with my property in particular is was food we got a ton of cover very limited food sources so now i went from so i started putting in some small food plots and it's a very dry, very challenging environment to grow anything where we are. Right. Uh, I have very sandy soils, so it holds very little moisture. And then we might go two, two and a half months in this growing season without a shot of rain, not even a drizzle.
0: And it's into the 90s every day. Yeah, sometimes lately hundreds it's, days it's been in, in the upper yeah.
1: 90s, low 100s dry, for, dry. <laughs> it's a challenging environment. Sure. And then we're relatively high elevation. You know, we're about 3,000, 3,500 feet in elevation. And that shortens your growing season down considerably too. Um, then my soil pH level is extremely high. I know everybody's talking about having to lime the soils as you go further east of me. Well, I sit on a limestone formation. And being that it's such a dry environment, the plants, there's not a lot of uh, chemistry going on with the, with the plants uh, to where that will bring your soil to a more on the acidic scale. Uh, there's not a lot of moisture to support you know all the little microorganisms in yep. the soil that yep. breaks stuff down. Yep. Um, So there's a lot of challenges there. And that's where I really started to dive into the no-till aspects. That's the only only way they can really grow crops. Um, And what I've found is by growing a really good stand of wheat or triticale, one, the deer will use it in the fall, but then to let that plant mature, that's a plant that's adapted really well for our environment. And then all of that, the root action and how it interchanges with co2 i'm not a soil scientist i've read some stuff on it but that chemistry of the roots will actually lower my ph to where so by having a good stand of wheat to plant into it lowers my ph to where my i'm getting closer to that seven line Mm -hmm. honestly i'm trying to get my ph down to eight my soil ph is really high Uh, but having a really good crop of wheat or rye triticale those are the the three that I really focus on brings that pH down and then letting that mulch layer stand shades the ground and then once and then when I plant through that straw that straw is helping suppress weeds helps shade the ground helps hold in what little moisture there is so I find my most successful plots like my corn plots this year are doing amazing where the hot zone yeah. fence is up yeah. outside of it it's grazed to the ground again right but the the corn it's six foot tall it's a it looks as good if not better than the production corn fields around me and it's just but it takes two years to get that wheat crop in to get that good stand of stubble uh to where you've lowered the ph you got the mulch and then you have the perfect conditions to grow whatever you're. Right. Your main right. crop
0: is. Do you envision ever going away from that no-till practice, or do you think that's the that's the all, way of the future?
1: That's all I'm doing. I, all, I do a lot of custom food plots for clients too. That's all I do is no-till. Mm-hmm. I I'll take a rough, unlevel field that hasn't been tilled. When you till it, you're killing all of the chemistry. Oh, we have a puppy visiting. Yep. Sorry about Hi, that. Hi, Luna. Cure the tail. <laughs> How are you? Thumping
0: against the table. That's, That's my, my three-month-old yellow lab puppy. And she is a cutie. She all right, Luna. We might have to put her up.
1: But just for what you're doing, every time you till the soil, what you're doing to destroy all of the microorganisms in that soil and we'll how those microorganisms are creating a community within the soil that helps the water infiltrate and stay in the soil rather than just puddle up on top and evaporate but there the trade-off is you have to apply herbicide to terminate the weeds or whatever mother crop like what i'm putting in the wheat i'll let that wheat almost mature I'll, and I'll spray it before those seeds are viable. So then I'm not having a bunch of, you know, weed or triticale seed on the ground sure, I'm competing sure. with. And you, along with
0: the no-till program, you have to kind of retool your implement to take, to to make sure that you've got, you know, the the tools are acquired. It's yeah. not as simple as just really going out. And it's, it's
1: a lot. All you need is a good sprayer and a no-till drill. Gotcha. Those, that's the two things that you need. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we, a uh, long story, but I was going to purchase a no-till drill for my property this year, but I'm still stuck with having to rent. Long story. Yeah. My clients that I do work for have their own own equipment, some you know, really nice no-till equipment. Sure. That
0: so, there's use. options. So, if, if you want to go through that program, it's not like you have to go yeah. right by the buy the stuff right away
1: yeah and so instead so a sprayer i'm just using a sprayer on my ranger that cost me about 800 bucks um the you know some of the atv no-till drills um some of them there, there's a couple different brands out there that look like they're pretty good um the one i've tried was uh where i have a another friend chris Rowe, roe hunting resources mm-hmm. he's uh He's come up with his little little Genesis 3 a few times. Hey, we got, we're, we're cute, but the tail thumping.
0: So you mentioned food being the limiting resource in your place. What are some other examples of limiting resources that you'd see that maybe aren't typical to your geographic location, but might be someone else's?
1: So a lot of people, it's going to be quality cover. And that's something that... And, and covers a, a very broad topic, right? You have different, and I'm, on my property, I'm trying to balance the different type of cover out from you know, good thermal cover for the winter time to good summer cover. Uh, and I have a lot of uh, cedars and Russian olives that are, are an invasive tree, but when they're at the right age, when they're, when they're about, oh, six to 15 feet tall, they're giving great thermal cover those branches are still close to the ground this is on the cedars that's the kind of age class of cedars i'm trying to get to but once they get probably 15 to 20 years old you start losing that those lower branches you've lost all of your grass all of your forbs the entire understory is gone and i've noticed on the east side of my property where i was just letting it go wild my deer densities have really started to fall the last couple of years. And I think it's just a change in how those cedars have choked everything out. Now, I still like to keep you know, visual barriers from the outside. So people can't look into the property. When the wildlife's in my property, they can't see what's going on outside it. That visual barrier is, is very important. And keeping little strips, little islands of those big mature cedars for the thermal cover they offer. I think has a lot of value, but I removed almost 18 acres of mature cedars this year and incredibly the grass is coming back. I mean, it's the grass in there's now waist high. Nice. Just after one season, whether those, you know, the rhizomes or the seed bank was in that still, once the sunlight was on the ground again, all the grass came back. So that's where for I'm talking, you know, like cover. I always like to create mosaics. Um, where you have some old standing stuff, you have some you know some areas that i 'm just managing strictly for the tall warm season grasses, and that 's there 's a lot of that management too from grazing prescribed grazing to keep the grass healthy, the timing number of cattle that we 're stocking mm-hmm. uh, the grazing is you know you think cattle and deer management like you think those two are clashing, but if you 're Habitat goals are to get tall, thick, healthy grass stands. You can use cows or grazing uh, at the right times, the right numbers and for the right length of time to get that that tall cover that you want for the fall to establish. Sure. sure. So you've had
0: this management plan implemented for quite a few years now. And yeah, kinda of let it, and it come into fruition. And you're always it's always involving, oh, right? Always you're never tweaking. done with it. It's you're always, always tweaking at it.
1: And it's almost like like this year, we had a, a giant eight point. I mean, like a giant eight point, or I should say this past year. We called him Shed. And he was the buck that our uh, one of our paying customers was really wanting to target. And I was kind of leaving him alone, trying to put my, you know, my customer on that buck. You know, he disappeared from us the uh opening week in the rifle season so every time i have like a devastation like that i shouldn't call it a devastation you know if it's shot on the neighboring place mm-hmm. or you know where if it's killed legally i'm the first one to congratulate the guy mm-hmm. right but it puts the challenge in me of what can i do to my property to make it where that deer doesn't have an excuse to leave sure so gotcha you. and you've
0: you've kind of developed that throughout the years as well. Right. That wasn't the case when you first got your property, but now you've kind of built it up and Mm -hmm. and you're identifying, like you said, the limiting factor of cover and have built that up so that these deer don't have to leave. They've got everything that they want right there.
1: Yep. They got tall grass cover to cedar thick cover. Now that you have all this cover established
0: and you identify your limiting factors and like you said, you're able to keep deer bucks on your property. How have you seen the age structure of those deer change from when you first bought the property, your first start management 10 years ago to where it is right now?
1: Yeah, well, well, there's two things that have changed. One is I'm a lot better at monitoring my deer herd over the last five years. But going back to the early days, I think we had four cameras up on 750 acres. There was a lot that we weren't seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so really even just going back the last five years, we went from seeing, you know, our age structure of bucks is more, I'm more about age structure than, you know, antler size. And what's funny is if there's, if the conditions for rifle season are really favorable and the deer are moving a lot during the daylight, the deer leave my property and they get shot. So the years, and that's really been what I've noticed has been the influencing factor in my buck age structure is the success of the rifle season or the lack of. Uh, So years, the rifle hunters, if it's really hot um, or it's really overly stormy and the hunters aren't wanting out and the deer aren't moving, but really those really hot, dry years, that's one thing where my property is lucky we have all the water in the neighborhood yeah yeah. Um, you go up or down the river our river typically goes dry sometime in july we'll start flowing again usually in november some october november you'll start seeing water in it again Mm -hmm. Um, but where we have the all the wetlands and ponds those dry years the deer stay on us because we have the water now we have the food we have the mosaic of cover so those deer can select whatever cover that they're needing for that time of year or that particular sure, day. Sure,
0: um, sure. So, so if the neighbor, neighbors wanted to improve their hunting, they would identify the limiting factor of water mm-hmm. and they would try to find ways to put in watering stations or how do they hold water longer throughout the year and try to keep the deer from leaving them their property and going on to yours. Right. Right. That's how your system kind of works. Yeah. Limiting factors. And then
1: most of my neighbors aren't, uh, they're using different grazing rotations where they're not allowing that grass to get very tall. You know, my neighboring property, um, the grass is maybe ankle to knee high uh, where my property is from knee high to head high. Yeah. Yep. Um, I noticed that (laughs) pretty thick in there. Yeah.
0: For sure. So you mentioned that you manage your deer, your bucks, for age more than you do antler size. Absolutely. For the the most part, from what I can tell. Um, So explain what does that look like in terms of monitoring what you have on your property and then um, putting forth a plan that will kind of maximize the deer's potential and the deer's age on your property.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, in the early days, we tried to target three year old and older bucks because that 's kind of what we had and Then there was a few years where we started getting a good number of four and even a few five year old bucks and so now we 're at we're trying to harvest four year old bucks or older, and we usually have around you know plus minus six bucks that are in that four year old plus age category now if we have a really tough harvest on rifle season might only have three or four two or three bucks really in that four plus Mm -hmm. category if the rifle hunters struggled we might have seven or eight four plus but really that's about the max maximum number of mature bucks that you know i have space to to hold gotcha seems like that's i don't i have a hard time imagining more than about 7 or 8 four-year-old plus bucks How many on the property.
0: how many did you have last year? So
1: the Last year we 2018. had 2018. So we had little stickers and shed and average joe. We just had 3 last year. So 3. Okay. The year before was one. It was partly me. I had two I sold two rifle hunts and they both killed mature bucks. Um, and then You know, it was was just a perfect rifle season. We lost a lot of bucks. Gotcha. Um, So the year before we had, I believe we had eight bucks, four-year-old plus. And then after that rifle season, we just had three. Yeah, so it fluctuates quite a bit. It does. For sure. And that really seems to be the, the factor to me. Yeah. And that's where my management goal, and then how, and that's where I'm changing things up this year because we lost that giant, eight point. Hey, it happens. Right. But I'm going to change how we access through the property. I built a new little ATV path, um, to where, uh, one was also got pictures of trespassers on the property, which was pretty frustrating too. I bet. Yeah. So I'm going to be driving the ATV up and down that corridor where the trespassing is, um, and just try changing the human pressure. You know, that's another element that we can all control in our property. Sure. So, you know, and that's what I was going to talk to you about. A lot of people don't have a sanctuary, you know, limiting your presence and your act- activity. Uh, where do those deer feel completely safe and are never bothered? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of my sanctuaries are, they're different. I got, one of my sanctuaries is a big warm season grass patch with just a few clumps of cedars in it. Uh, and that's where the deer are right now. They're not in the thick cedars Uh, in the fall. That's when it seems that I call it the outback. It's uh, just north of that east food plot. Just a big I don't know. It's probably close to 40 acres of just grass. And I'll graze that every three to five years just to keep the grass healthy. Um, As you get in the colder time, that's when they'll move into those big thick cedar patches. So it's just keeping a variety of that habitat but it's still it's like how do you manage your human activity yeah and that's where i try to develop patterns through the ranch that the deer accept me they accept oh okay yeah that's normal that's normally just checking the food plots checking the food okay yeah that's yeah that's that's normal activity um you know, so the deer, you know, are also able to pattern me, so I can get to where I need to go and check on things. Gotcha, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Because those deer will pattern you
0: too. And those sanctuaries, you literally never go in them, other than the occasional habitat project, and then you're out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's I'll very go in. Minimal.
1: Yeah, like like this year, I mean, I didn't even shed hunt in my central sanctuary. I just left it completely alone, um, but where I'm doing a lot of habitat work, like this year and next year too, I'm going to be in that East Sanctuary doing a lot of you know, bedding area improvements mm-hmm. and being I'm in there with the equipment, I'm in and out on the ATV multiple times a day, I'll go ahead and shed hunt and really walk it and see what I can learn. Gotcha you're targeting you said four year old bucks
0: right that, now that's that's kind of what your, yeah. your goal is right now let's talk real quick about what you look for and when a four- to age deer primarily what are you looking for that tells you that that is a four-year-old deer and maybe let's break this into two different categories when you're looking at trail camera picture and when you're in the stand and maybe we can relate that back to what happened in 2018. Because yeah. I think everyone goes through that. And I'm I'm raising my hand right now too, because I've been through that exact same situation and I struggle with it.
1: Yeah, so, so the hunt last year, there was a really nice, nothing special, just I call him average Joe, nice four-year-old eight-point. I passed him up um, the year before as a three-year-old. Um, he's a buck I thought I knew really well. And... A three-year-old eight-point stepped out. I had to make a split-second decision, but we were in that stand hunting that particular buck. Mm-hmm. And when this three-year-old stepped out, the rack looked right, the body looked right, and you know I made a, you know, I had ten, fifteen seconds. I thought it was the buck I was in there for. Yeah,
0: I don't even think it was that long looking at the footage like it, it was it happened pretty yeah, fast you look over your shoulder and it's right there and then you're like, drawing oh, yep it happened really quick and I, average joe was
1: and a, then i ended up missing average joe in late season um well i like he he dodged my arrow i uh i stopped him he was alert and i might have i mean he like I had a buddy uh, just with me I was hunting does with. Mm-hmm. We weren't even really targeting him then, but he came by and uh, I actually clipped just the top of his back as he do- do- dodged he the arrow. He got out of the
0: way, huh? He got out of the way. Dang. Uh, <clears throat> so, Average Joe, you know, is a four-year-old because of your history with him, because right. you could track him. Because, but what
1: is- but, uh, If you looked at Average Joe, you'd say, yeah, he's maybe three or four. He yeah. was just an average sized rack. And like you said. He didn't have yeah, a particularly big body.
0: Um, it was a three-year-old that stepped out and you looked at the rack real quick and it, it looked, looked the like same. Him? It yeah, looked like him? So yeah, so using, using antler size and configuration as a judge of age well, is just, and that's where it's not a very good indicator.
1: Of, and that's where I had a three-year-old buck on the property, T3, who was 165 inch, maybe a little bit bigger <laughs> three-year-old. Yeah. And he had a really long body, but because I saw him as a two-year-old the year before, where he's he a big rack two-year-old, but you couldn't make him into anything more than a two-year-old with his body characteristics, mm-hmm. you know, really the definite transition line on the neck, uh, just looked like a doe with really big antlers, you know, as a, sure. as a two-year-old. That's crazy and he's so different as a three-year-old it's like you see him like oh oh yep that's him yep and uh i purposely stayed away from where he was at because i didn't want to tempt myself yeah but i know sure. he made it through the season and he'll he's a buck that will show up uh sometime in i know people talk about the seasonal shifts of the white tails and i i'll notice i have a uh, core summer bucks on my place, you know, June, July, into August, and then sometime in late August, I'll start getting the first shift of bucks. I'll start seeing new bucks showing up. End of August, and then uh, the next shift of bucks will start in middle of October. There'll be another influx of bucks, and then I'll have I'll lose a few, but my property just seems like it builds bucks through this season, and then. The end of October, first week of November, it's just, it's fun. Every every pool, there's new bucks like every day showing Mm up. And then those rut bucks, most of them will stay on my property through Thanksgiving. Um, And then as the rut starts to wind down, some of those bucks will, they'll start to disperse. Um, You'll see them kind of break back up in their bachelor groups in December, at least this is what I've noticed in my property. And then once they shed, it's, you know, in the spring green up happens, you'll see like the shed bucks running around till spring green up, usually end of March. And then they're dispersed all mm-hmm. over again. Yeah. Um, so you, you talk about
0: monitoring what goes on out there. Like you can monitor patterns mm-hmm. as influx of bucks come in and bucks leave. So talk a little bit about what it takes to monitor deer on your property and maybe some general guidelines as to monitor deer on a smaller property and maybe we have to break this podcast up into two parts because i want to compare what you do on your property for whitetails in nebraska to how you monitor maybe some of the western high country because that's a whole nother can of worms to go up there but let's just talk about how you monitor your property right now for the deer that you have and to meet the
1: goals that you want to achieve yeah. So I, I have cameras on every definite like pinch point or travel corridor. Some of my create with the mower, you know, I create obvious trails that really help pull those deer right where I want them for the stand or the camera. I'll keep a couple uh, cameras on my food plots. And then I do run a couple, um, feed stations. You know, there's some rules in Nebraska, you know, they have to be within 200 yards or you can't hunt within 200 yards of these feed stations. And I'll only run the feed really middle of October through middle of December just to kind of keep track of my my buck inventory over those those, uh, feed stations. Gotcha. I don't run them year round.
0: So, I mean, in total, what are you looking at? The number of cameras you've got out so
1: I'm trying to think so it's on on 750 acres i'm probably running i'm guessing close to 40 cameras
0: and you're checking those well obviously it it's based off the season yeah let's say right now july Like right wherever, now july i only have 20th, about 10 cameras
1: out 10 just monitoring
0: food plots how and, often are you checking those
1: um Maybe like every, I'm out about every two to three weeks just to stay on top of, you know, the spraying and make sure that the hot zone fence has got a good battery on it. Sure. So right now about every two to three weeks okay. I'm checking. Uh, middle of November, what are you doing then? So I'll top, top off my feed stations once every two weeks, no more, no less. I don't care if it's empty because they're right in the middle of my sanctuaries, right? So I'll check the feed stations every two weeks. And then the other cameras I'll check only if I'm going into or out of a tree stand. I'm not going to make special trips in just to check cameras. So I might have a camera that will sit all season. And maybe I lost the information of what that camera was doing that year. But what's going to happen next year will be pretty similar. I got you. So
0: you've got a pretty extensive program then to monitor to to monitor it. And that's probably why you said that uh, you spend way too much time. Oh, that's, that's just what <laughs> my wife says. I, <laughs> I could put more time into it. But that's what it takes. You know, you've got, you've got that much acreage that you've got to cover. You're that invested in improving the wildlife and monitoring it. And that's the and program that it, it is required to do that.
1: And it's something I just really enjoy to doing too, is just to understand those seasonal shifts and changes and what the deer are doing. And then you're also seeing what the turkeys are doing. What, what do you have for bobcats, coyotes? Gives you an idea of what your predator yeah. situation's like. When and you, what you your s- trespasser situation I just gonna is say, Yeah,
0: you picked up trespassers on Mother. it. <laughs> for sure. Um, maybe let's cut it off here. Let's take a break. This will be part one. Part two, we'll pick up and morph what you do for habitat and deer improvement in nebraska into what you're doing in the western states for mule deer Mm -hmm. and elk because that's that's a whole nother interesting topic i don't think a whole lot of people so well awesome man appreciate it thanks for the info and uh we'll pick this up in part two
1: yeah hopefully uh this is something you can use hopefully somebody's interested enough to to listen through me babble so for sure thanks again thanks take care